Right, Ecclesiastes 12, uh, verse 9 through to 14. The conclusion of the matter. Not only was the teacher wise, but also he imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and, of, uh, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Greetings all. Um, This is our final part of Ecclesiastes, number 14. Um, And we're going to do a one-off song of songs perhaps find out what all that's about, a whistle-stop tour, and then we say goodbye to Solomon. Um, Number 14, glorifying God by enjoying him forever. I've used Piper's thing, by enjoying him rather than and enjoying him. They go together. As we've seen, Solomon experimented with what this world runs after. To see if there's anything that brings everlasting meaning or direction or satisfaction. And he was to find that that was totally unnecessary. Because God in the beginning had warned him not to go astray. But Solomon, it appears, didn't accept God's warning. And he decided that he'd only truly know whether something was worthwhile or not by trying it. The man whom God had made the wisest man on the earth at that time fell for that old trick of the devil back in the garden. Did God really say? So rather than trusting God's word, he followed Adam and chomped down hard on the attractive fruit of the forbidden tree. And he justified it, claiming, as he does as we go along, that he was testing all of these things with the wisdom God had given him. But God never gave him wisdom so he could deliberately sin and disbelieve his word and take no heed of his warnings. Nevertheless, Solomon analysed everything he tried in this world with God's wisdom and came full circle, concluding that God was right all along. What a meaningless pursuit. And the conclusion was, as it was in the beginning, a life lived without God is meaningless, futile, directionless, temporary, and in the end, fatal. And some who've experimented headlong with the sin of this world never lived to tell the tale. And if they have, some bear literal or psychological scars and needless pain. But praise God, Solomon lived to tell the tale, And he uses Ecclesiastes to warn others of what God had warned him not to do and the reasons why. 
And as I was looking at this this week, I thought Solomon's a bit like the Christian who says, how can I resist temptation unless I put myself in the way of it and strengthen my resistance muscles? But Bible never says that. Bible says the opposite. Never deliberately put yourself in the way of temptation. Proverbs 6.27, which Solomon wrote, Can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burned? Times of temptation and testing are permitted, are allowed by the Lord to grow you, and he allows them and oversees them, but you never deliberately walk into them. Solomon wrote again, Proverbs 2.12, Wisdom will save you from the ways of those who leave the straight paths to walk in dark paths. 2.16 of Proverbs, It will also save you from wisdom, from the adulterer, for her house leads down to death and her paths to the spirit of the dead. Paul's advice to Timothy concerning the love of money is to run to flee, sexual immorality, to flee, idolatry, to flee, evil desires of youth, you guessed it, to flee. You run from temptation, you never walk into it of your own uh, volition. And Solomon in Ecclesiastes, you see this slow realisation of that which he already knew deep down, which is so true of many Christians, and the book begins with everything's meaningless, and it ends with meaningful. So I just want to spend this short time we have together, how to glorify God by enjoying him forever, based on verse 14, which is where I think that statement came from. Anyway, and uh, tracking this passage down from verse 9, how to glorify God by enjoying forever. First, receive God's wisdom, and then share it. Um, not only, verse 9, was the teacher wise, that's Solomon, but also he import, imparted knowledge to the people. He asked for wisdom right at the beginning, and he started off well. He asked for insight so he could rule right as king, and so he could live right, so he could do the job that God had given him. What was that? To serve the people. So then he went about serving. Well, how did he go about serving? By sharing the secrets and the mysteries of the word of God with all who would listen. Now, we know he started, went off to a great start. And remember, he worships God in front of the people. He's made this temple that can facilitate corporate worship to God, where God symbolically dwelled. And he prayed for them. And he, uh, he started off brilliantly. And his witness spread across Jerusalem and into the whole known world. And those who didn't know the God of heaven and earth came near and traveled far to hear Solomon impart God's wisdom. But our application to us is, is exactly how Jesus said that now, right now, we have someone so much greater than Solomon. And let's face it, he was an appalling example at times, but this one isn't. Matthew 12, 42, Jesus says, The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment, that Sheba who came to see him, with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now one greater than Solomon is here. Hallelujah. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. 
And he has now revealed that which was locked up and hidden. And that wisdom is this, that God became one of his own creatures. He lived a perfect life to undo the imperfect lives of those before him and those to come after him, you and me. And after, through blood, sweat and tears, he had lived that perfect life, he then gives it for free to cover those who trust him. More than that, he dies in the place of sinful humanity, having their sins laid on him who had no sin upon the cross. And he bore the anger, the pure anger and judgment and wrath of God for those sins so that all those who come believing their sins have been punished on Jesus will be forgiven and acquitted. That's the gospel. That's the mystery that's been revealed. Have you responded? 1 Corinthians 1.30, Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Let me ask you if you're already in that category. Are you like an updated Solomon? Are you sharing Christ our wisdom with others and imparting the knowledge that has been imparted to you that Jesus Christ is Saviour Lord and can be trusted and must be trusted. And are you then moving on and saying once trusted, others can be forgiven. They can have, you can have, a clean slate, a brand new life and a brand new power to live that life for him. 12 verse 13, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Fear God, keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. The other way of glorifying God and getting to know him forever, fulfilling verse 14, in other words, 13, not 14, 14's about the judgment, 13. Solomon was prepared to dig deep to know more of God. Verse 9, he pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. I remember if you're, do you remember if, when, <laughs> who's got the interpretation for that tongue? <laughs> do you remember when you first came to know the Lord? Do you remember that your desire was strong? You longed for more of him. You couldn't get enough of the word. You couldn't get enough of other Christians. You loved talking to him and about him. Everything was new. Everything was exciting. And then there came a time when things appeared to level off. Become more everyday. And at that point, it's easy to get complacent. And become satisfied with what you do know. You almost think sometimes there's not much more to know. As soon as you get into that mindset, your relationship with Christ and your love for him starts to drop off. That, it really is true. We talk about the honeymoon period. There's no honeymoon period. It's all a honeymoon. And as soon 
as you get into that every day and, and you get complacent, your desire weakens and you seek subtly, slowly but surely, just to be or to do the bare minimum. If you treated your family and your friends like that, you wouldn't, they wouldn't be around for long. And the quality of those relationships would drop off. They would begin to deteriorate. You see, to keep going with Christ, you've got to keep in step with the Spirit of Christ. And unlike fellow mortals, sometimes we say, oh, I know me, Julia, like the back of my hand. I don't, actually. She's a mystery uh, and will continue to be so. But unlike generally our attitude of fellow mortals, one thing's definitely true is you can never get to know Christ inside out, not even the edge of his ways to some degree. And that's the pull, isn't it? That's the, the thing that keeps you excited because you begin to discover one thing about him and then another. He's always keeping you on your toes. And once you experience one of the delights of knowing him, you want to experience another. And there's no end to it, is there? And there are more tre- and more treasures uncovered with him. But like it, with any relationship you hold dear, you have to keep working at it to get those things, to know that person. And Solomon got this at the start and he dropped off at the middle and then he returned at the end. And let me tell you, that is often the way of a Christian life. And it really shouldn't be that way. All full on at the beginning, plateau in the middle and then we realise our mistakes and we come back. That's not how it should be. How many of us, including myself, can throw away many good years in the middle because we just got complacent and we stopped digging deep. You know, you can't expect to get diamonds if you're only prepared to scratch the surface of the soil. When I go to Zambia, or I did go to Zambia, we start digging into the word big time. It's very exciting. And when you start digging with those Zambian pastors, their eyes begin to light up and they go, go deeper, go deeper. <laughs> and it's brilliant because you just think, yeah, we will. That's what we're going to do. And, you know, it, they're just so enthusiastic. But it, it's like they're seeing a jewel and then they want to see another jewel. And then they want to see. You've got to dig deep for those sparkling beauties. Anyone who wants increasingly to be changed from glory to glory by the Spirit through the Word, you've got to go deeper. And the great thing is, the professor of divinity, oh, I hate that word, they're not divine, the, the professor of divinity, or, or, or you know, the ultimate knowledge in theology, has just touched the edges. He knows nothing. That's what's so good about it. Solomon did this for a while. Proverbs 2 verse 1. If you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, and if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look at it, look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, Then, after that work's been done, you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. It is not automatic, my friends, not at all. 
It needs resolve. It needs to ignore how you feel. It needs determination. It needs, like Job, that you come to the point where you see that treasuring the word of God is even more important than your daily bread. You've got to keep going if you want to keep in step with the spirit of God and the word of God and Christ, who's always on the move. And it's great, you know, to have a heart that is dissatisfied with staying where you are and always wanting more. Because there's that dichotomy, isn't there, with the Lord? That dilemma where you're satisfied and yet you're still unsatisfied. What I like about Roger, our elder, is that, you know, um, we were praying uh, and a lot of people were coming to park and getting saved at one point. And he said, Lord, Lord, uh, we want more. <laughs> and, you know, that, that's what it's about. 200 come and get saved. Roger would say, Lord, that's brilliant. We want more. Yes, of course we do, don't we? But you see, sometimes we think, oh, 200, that's a lot. That's going to be hard work. Oh, well, um, let's stop there. No, no, no. You see, always wanting more of Christ is the way to total meaning and satisfaction and even reason for being. And anything less is just short change. Don't you ever get fed up with the world? It's pathetic. There's nothing that glitters like gold in this world. Not in my view, anyway. And then Solomon, he recorded what he discovered. And we need to either make a mental note or, or record or underline. Lots of people write in their Bibles or underline or have another little notebook so that when they discover those treasures, so that they don't forget them, they record them. And then as they discover more of Christ, the more on fire they become. And the more on fire you become, the more you want him to set others on fire. Why? So that they too may enter into the increasing wonder of knowing him. Can I just tell you, you might love your wife to bits, and, or your husband to bits, but Christ is far superior to get to know, and far more exciting. Is knowing him more what ultimately drives you at this stage of your Christian life? Because knowing Christ is better than any high or any wonder that could be experienced in this world. And there is one addiction that can never be wrong, and that is being completely and utterly spending your whole life with one aim, to get to know Christ more and more, to share him with others so that they have what you have. Be addicted to Christ and get others addicted. Switch your addictions to Christ. Paul was like that, Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. That was then, this is now. That's under the blood now. Don't be haunted by it, it's gone. Forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. And then we miss this bit, don't we? All of us, who are mature 
should take such a view of things because the mature are those that can drop off. How to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Ask God, by being prepared to dig deep to know more of God, ask God to give you the right words. Verse 10, the teacher searched to find just the right words. In other words, he took time, it wasn't automatic, was it? He took time, he searched his own heart, he searched God's heart, he bore in mind the state and the situation of his hearers, He was ready to address the futility of many ways of thinking in that present world, the false ideas and the allegiances into a world without God. What for? Why did he spend that time? So he could get the right application, so that what he wrote was upright and true. Verse 10. I wonder when the, you know, it says people were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I wonder whether sometimes I always just think, well, they got the pen and they were almost possessed and they went, I reckon they probably stopped and they thought, no, that's not right, I'm going to change that. And then a a bit like that. Because there is a human element. Until it was upright and true. Until they wrote exactly what the Spirit wanted them to write. See what I mean? I don't think it was that easy. And why was it so important for it to be upright and true? Because Solomon painstakingly went through this process and aligned it all the time to God's word and the principles that it taught. Because he had to make sure that was what God was saying. And as long as he brought God's word to bear, whether the hearers liked it or not, he would say it and then write it. But first he was convinced himself that it was right and it was upright and it was true. Ultimately, bottom line with Solomon at that time was that he cared about the only opinion that matters, what God thinks and what God says. And everything else for him at that time was measured in the light of that, and especially measuring a secular godless society in the light of that. Now, why was he so obsessed with talking about his society at that time and how rubbish it was? I'll tell you why. Because whatever society thinks does creep into the psyche of the believer. It really does. And so we need to recognise it and align it and conform it to the truth of God's word. We are never to evaluate the truth of God through the lens of this world. Many evangelical churches are doing that right now. We must always evaluate this world through the lens of the truth of God. No matter how Christian and equal it sounds, we need to start with God's word and apply that to the world and forget what the world thinks and never filter the scripture through what the world thinks. And that's what Ecclesiastes Solomon was obsessed with coming to the point where it was upright and true. You see, Ecclesiastes is all about, if you read it, Solomon commenting on a godless society using God's word and God's wisdom. That's what it's about, (laughs) all the time. And if a preacher never does that, he's shying away from his responsibility. He's not warning his flock, he's not correcting his flock, he's not protecting his flock, and he's not loving his flock. 1 Corinthians 13, 6, Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. 
It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Why must I have my quiet time, or whatever you want to call it? Why must I be in the Word every day? To counteract what we're bombarded with every single day, from where we get our news from, to what the government might say, to what we watch for entertainment, to the everyday conversations we have with others. If we don't regularly dip into what God thinks and says, we'll very quickly adopt another way of thinking. Hebrews 5.14 says this, but solid food, it's these Christians who are still on baby milk 10 years later, and it says, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Okay, how to glorify God by enjoying him forever. forever. Here's another thing. Recognize that God's truth sometimes hurts. Verse 11, the words of the wise are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? It's a spiked cattle prod used to poke the cattle back in the right direction. And if they keep driving in the opposite direction, they keep getting poked till they go back in the right direction. And it hurts. It's interesting what Jesus said to Saul before he uh, got saved. Saul was thundering towards Damascus to murder more Christians. Jesus stopped him in his trucks, knocked him off his horse. And Paul says this, describing it. We all fell to the ground. And Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Saul knew scripture inside out, but he didn't know the author of scripture. But it does seem like he was already having his conscience pricked before Jesus appeared to him. The Lord was getting to him. He was prodding him with the cattle prod and he was kicking against it and still steering in the wrong direction. Know what I mean? (laughs) It's happened to me many times. And Christ comes to him and almost says, you're destroying yourself. You can't kick against me and expect everything to be wonderful. Let me ask you, and I ask myself, well, I know I've had the cattle prod on many occasions. And our our sister Mary often threatens me with it too. And she's absolutely right. Have you ever felt the wisdom of God and the truth of God poke you like a cattle prod? (laughs) It blooming hurts. Those times when he comes in challenge or rebuke or conviction and you recoil. And there's a pain inside. Because he comes to you with the prod and reminds you of what you've said or done that is out of sync with him, that is not worthy of you as a believer. Sometimes it's very serious, it ends in tears. Sometimes it makes you groan, it gives you a pain. There's regret, there's shame, there's guilt.
And the word itself in the New Testament is called the sword of the Spirit. And there are times when that sword cuts deep. Uh, Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates, even dividing soul, spirit, joints, marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. That ties in with verse 11. Their collected sayings, that's the word of the wise set in order, are like firmly embedded nails. These are nails that are securely bashed into wood. They are words that get right into the heart. They embed themselves in your soul. They hit the target, they stay there, and they're fixed in the heart of the hearer. And it's very, very hard to shake them off, if at all. And that would be incredibly scary, except for this. The words of the wise, set in order, like goads, firmly embedding nails, are given by one shepherd. They are secured by the Lord himself. That's the good news. These collected sayings are the word of God because they're given by that great shepherd of the sheep. Why? To guide, to protect, to correct, to love, to lead his flock to safety like any good shepherd would. Never ever be afraid when the Lord comes in convicting power with his goad, with a rebuke, with a firmly embedded nail. Because you're in safe hands. You know why? Because he loves you and he wants the best for you and his idea is to conform you into the loveliness of his son and to remove a bit more of your ugliness. Two Timothy three sixteen. All Scripture, mainly Old Testament at this time, is God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You see, if you know the shepherd, to know the shepherd is to trust the shepherd. And because you know the shepherd and because you trust the shepherd and because he's always come through for you in the past, no matter how hard it might seem at the time, it means you're unafraid because you know he means you no harm, only good. And that's how you have to see it. And it is never the shepherd's intention to point out your sin and leave you in it. And you know some Christians, the Lord points out their sin and they go away feeling horrible about themselves. That's not the point. He points it out and he might be doing that right now so he can forgive you and transform you and release you. Neither does he while he does it seek to condemn but to encourage you to look away from yourself and look to him. Neither does he want you to wallow in guilt. It's not humble to go around feeling like that, you know. I'm unworthy, I'm unworthy. You've been made worthy by Christ. True guilt is only used by God to bring you to the Saviour who will remove your guilt. I wish we could all lock into this bit because this is the important bit. 
Spurgeon says this, for every one look at self, take ten looks at Christ. That's the way to do it. Never view your sin in isolation without knowing the Saviour's right there with you, ready to absolve, ready to move you on, and ready to send you on your way rejoicing. You know why? Because the Christian life and the kingdom of God, Romans 14, 17, is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Have you got that? Because if you haven't got that, you've missed it. And you're still wallowing around in your sin, it's been forgiven. I hope you don't realise I'm just preaching at you. <laughs> the reason why I get emotional is because it's true of me. Here's another way to glorify God by enjoying him forever. Don't wear yourself out on pointless, unprofitable distractions. Verse 12. This is a different interpretation of this verse for me, but I think it's the right one. But Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them, that's the scripture, of making books there is no end and much study wearies the body. I think this is about, because it's a warning, right? It's about studying stuff that does you no good, wears you out, isn't true, and to which there's no answer anyway. (laughs) How many times (laughs) have I as a young Christian got caught up with something that I want to solve theologically that nobody else has solved and somehow I think I can't? It's pathetic. Three years later, I realise I'm defeated. Three years? Also beware of Christian books that add stuff to Scripture. Or try to be clever by blurring the edges and being trendy and they're coming up with a new doctrine or a new revelation that everybody can chase after for six months and then it dies away and everyone realises it was rubbish. Don't waste your time on that stuff. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Instead, be in the word of God so that you can evaluate everything else by it. I love what C.S. Lewis says, doesn't he? He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And we're almost finished. I think this is the ultimate reason how to glorify God by reminding yourself of this. Know that God is actually our reason for being. Verse 13, now all has been heard. Here's the conclusion. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is, literal translation, you know it says the duty of in brackets, that's because it shouldn't be there. Just just to paraphrase it makes sense. For this is the whole man, is what it means. This is whole man. This is what you're made for. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. And this fear of God, it's not used like we use fear now at all. It's not terror really. It's a respect and a reverence for just who he is. It's that sense that you stand in awe of him, that you lovingly adore him. It's exactly what Solomon was saying about standing in awe of him. That you're praising him because he's God most high and because he's God most high, you humble yourselves before him and you're perpetually marvelling at what he's done and will do. 
And as a result of that, you allow him to envelop you and move yourself out of the way. Get rid of yourself that he may all be all in all. Myself gets so much in the way when I'm in this pulpit, honestly. Such an idiot. Well, you could object. <laughs> anyway. How do we live such reverence? Because it's about living. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole man. By freely living out the words of the wise in this chapter, given by one shepherd. I love Psalm 119.32. I run in the path of your commands, for you have set my heart free. Here's the thing. Before you were a Christian, you thought you were free before you came to the Lord. I thought I was free as a bird. Now I know I was a slave to sin, self, society and Satan. And so are you if you're not a Christian. And your old heart scammed you into believing that you were free. Free to do what you wanted, when you wanted, with who you wanted. And now when you become a Christian, you look back at that life and you know that when you were outside of Christ, you were just heaping up wrath for yourself, verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing which you thought nobody else knew about, whether good or evil. So you came to Christ and perhaps to your surprise, you began to realise that you could do what you couldn't do before. Maybe it was a process. And you began to love like you'd never loved before. And you lived like you'd never lived before. And you began to know joy and pleasure at Christ's right hand, at God's right hand, that you never saw on you before. And instead of it being a miserable existence of rule keeping, it was another world you entered into entirely, an absolute joy to serve somebody that you loved to bits because he loved you to bits with all your rubbish and all your flaws. And instead of his commands binding you, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, it's not about that, and burdening you, you loved them and you wanted to live by them. When the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. But do you, are you free? I mean, yes, you are free if you're a believer. But do you live like you're free? Do you enjoy serving God? Do you enjoy God? Do you enjoy other Christians? Do you love telling other people about him? Do you? Do I? But you know, the best thing of all is that Christ has set you free to be what you're supposed to be. Bible says he is your life. And down here, you start off as this formless lump of rock and God begins chiseling you into the image of his son and one day you'll, if you like, look at the rock, which is you, and you'll see the perfect image of Jesus in it. He's knocking all the rough spots off you. Yes, it hurts, the chisel hurts, but hallelujah. Look what, he, what his end game is. A lot of people are yawning, I'm going to close. Lovingly, you see you have to just say it as it is sometimes, don't you? Lovingly revere God, live by his truth, 
For this is you. This is the whole you. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for Solomon and what we've learned from him, how not to and how to. Uh, All Bible characters are like that, bar the Lord Jesus. But we thank you, Lord, that Solomon very clearly points to that great one, Shepherd. And uh, Lord, we pray that our lives would point to him, that we would live for him, that we'd fall in love with him all over again, that we would stop not enjoying him, uh, that we would learn to use these things in order to enjoy him, and that we would... uh, uh, walk in step with the Spirit through the Word and that we would allow you to transform us. We can be Jesus to other people. We can if we get out of the way. And I just pray that you would help me to do that and help all of us to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.